everybody, and welcome to the very 170th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Maybe the best podcast in the world that talks about board games, whoa, card whoa. games, role play. Sorry, sorry uh, that's my colleague Tom Brewster. My name's Quentin Smith. Tom, do you have a problem with that statement? Yeah, no, but... I do also think that's a bit big-headed, isn't it, Quinn? What, to say that we're... I, did I say that we're maybe the best? I thought... Oh, I if it's maybe, maybe, then that's fine. Our Twitter account, I think, says the best, the world's best board game review show. you got you got to feel yourself a little bit, Tom. <laughs> okay. Uh, Ava, uh, also on the line, Ava Foxford. Hi. Uh, Ava, how do you feel about um, br- sort of swaggering braggadocia? Um, I think it uh, occasionally makes me look really hot, but most of the time uh, comes across a little bit. Uh, full on and I tend to do it only really tentatively in this sort of voice I think we're quite popular (laughs) but it's not really a competition I thought you were going to say that's your swaggering braggadocio voice being like... I've got loads of I swagger mean, now. On this spectacular podcast, we have got some board games we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the cooperative game Endangered, in which two to five players, or maybe actually I think you can play it just by yourself, try and save some endangered animals. We're going to be talking about Ishtar, a game by the uh, famous board game designer Bruno Cathala. I have no idea what you try and do in Ishtar. You try and grow a garden in the desert? You try and do right, gardens Ava? in the desert, but you've got to be irritated by other people and it's all a bit wet and dry. And in another game where you get irritated by other people, uh, Tom and I are going to be talking about Radlands, a head-to-head game about trying to collect water and kill people in Mad Max. It's like being inside of Mad Max. You're also getting that? wet and dry in Radlands, but not as wet because you don't have that much water to spend. Ah, it's kind of the theme of this podcast, isn't it? It's about sort of environments and trying not to, to die in them and trying to make them more habitable. Yeah. Smashed it. <laughs> Smashed it! Uh, <laughs> that, that was kind of a callback. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> To start off, we're going to talk about a 2020 cooperative game titled Endangered, which was embiggened last year with a uh, as the publishers released an expansion titled Endangered New Species. Now, this is a cooperative game in which one to five players try and save an animal. Uh, which animal, you ask? Well, that's kind of one of the cool parts about Endangered. Endangered ships with a variety of scenarios, so one day when you sit down to play Endangered, you only care about tigers. You've got lovely wooden tigers, you and your friends are trying to save tigers, save the habitat, but then flip the board over, next time you play, perhaps you're trying to save sea otters. Uh, I've tried to save tigers with Tom, but Tom, you've played other games of Endangered. What animal did you try and save? I tried to save the sea turtles, and we did succeed just. (laughs) Okay, so I think the first things to say about Endangered is probably that it's interesting, it's simple, and it has a great theme. And those three things alone kind of make it worthy of note for me. I came away from this game having really enjoyed my time with it. So it's a very, very simple situation. You've got a board, which is a grid. You're going to cover that grid with animals that you are trying to save. And then by the side of the board, you've got a bunch of countries, and due to a weird thing, those countries are only revealed as the game goes on, who may or may not take an interest in saving the species that you're trying to save. So the win state for the game is trying to collect enough influence, sort of placing these little cubes on countries, um, so they become more interested in saving these animals. And every country has a different kind of condition um, from which it's it may be more likely to save an animal. So Germany, for some reason, is just random. Germany is like super capricious. It's gonna You're going to roll a dice and add the amount of influence you've got, and that determines whether Germany might become interested in saving an animal. Whereas countries like Russia or China want lots of that animal to be around on this board. 
Um, and also you do lose the game if all of the animals run out, which is kind of <laughs> both a board game mechanical term and something that really fits with the theme of the game. You are tr- like, if you are down to one tiger or one turtle, that animal can't breed anymore. And that, at that point only you have lost the game. Um, but how do you do any of this? Well, Endangered has kind of this interesting card action system. So everyone's going to pick their own character. And when Tom came over, I played the Super Smash Brothers character selection music as you chose. You chose to be a lobbyist, but there yeah. are some more. Enter- <laughs> I think you can be a photographer. Is that what I, I chose to be a wildlife TV presenter? What else is there? There's in the game? zoologist. There's environmental lawyer, and I believe philanthropist. And in the expansion, I think there's a card that lets you be a celebrity, which is quite fun. (laughs) Your special skill? Famous, no actual (laughs) skills of any kind. Friends, I would actually like to see the wildlife show that you presented. I would. That's incredibly kind of you, Ava. But I, I, I'll tell you right now, I'd be awful. I'd be crying all the time. (laughs) I would just. I have this. You know, if I, I get really easily overwhelmed by beautiful things in nature, so like. They would just need to do reshoots because, like, I, I've just visibly, like, like I've, I'm, I've just got some really bad news. So it would be horrible. And that's fitting because your action in the game, Quins, was uh, reshoot that scene, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> your one special action. That's right. If, if I if, if my turn began and I rolled a bunch of dice and looked at the numbers and didn't like them, I could reshoot them and roll them again. And I think that only cost me a cool million dollars because <laughs> Endangered has this secondary currency of money, but it the manual specifically tells you that every money token is exactly one million dollars, <laughs> which kind of is... it. it Makes sense, you know, from a design perspective, but very silly in play because you're just like, oh, we need to go and send another $2 million to Canada. Exclusively using the word million when referring to money just made, it made us seem really irresponsible. Like, do you have a million? Yeah, I've got a million. Do you want to spend a million? Yeah, spend a million. (laughs) Or it was like, Um, oh, I think uh, this time I might just pop to work and uh, collect two million. Like one, (laughs) and each round of the game represents like a year, I think. But then in in practicalities, it just... You think of the time span being much shorter, so it's like, oh, I'm just going to pop to work. You think it's going to be like, oh, I'm going to spend a morning at my desk and collect $2 million. This conservation lock is easy. It is also funny because each you only get like three actions each year, but one of those actions might be shoving a tiger. Like, <laughs> which, to be fair, is like probably an incredibly involved procedure if you want to, in real life, move a tiger from one like hectare to another like place. But uh, in the game, like it just it's very silly pushing a little wooden tiger and being like, yep, that's my summer. <laughs> um, but no, the game, what I was going to say is I really like the action selection system in the game. So basically, it's kind of a kind of a worker placement game. On your turn, you'd roll three dice, and then on each of the, you're going to place each of those dice on a different action. Now, at the start of the game, you've only got four cards, one of which is the aforementioned shove an animal space. Um, but another action is to play a card from your hand. And every career that you might be, whether that's a celebrity or wildlife presenter or lobbyist, has a deck of cards, and you're going to draw cards into your hand. And then some of these cards that you play are like, you know, one-shot actions, like, oh, everybody gets rich, which was a card that I had in the last <laughs> game. But a lot of the cards are action spaces that when you play, go next to the board and that's kind of a job now that everyone can do everyone can place a dice on that card that you just put down to have a more efficient you know way of influencing countries or shoving animals around the boards to keep them safe from deforestation or oil slicks or whatever's happening in your scenario um but what i liked about that tom is the way that as you play more actions out it feels like you're kind of building an office out like the the 
turn one of endangered to me felt like a bunch of people with different skills going, okay, we're gonna save the sea turtles. And then as years pass and you put more of these action cards down, it feels like you're building out your network. It feels mm. like you're setting up your little wildlife conservation office. It really works for me thematically. Yeah, I think that the, the that action selection system is really fantastic. And I, we should also talk about the dice system in the game as well, where you roll this handful of dice at the start of your turn and you place the dice on the actions to go and take them. So I might put a one on the go to workspace and then take my $2 million on my dice. But then someone else in a future round might want to go on that space. And if they want to go on that space, they have to put a higher number than what's already on there on that space. So if they put a three, then they can go on that space. However, those dice only get taken off at the start of a player's turn, which means there's this very interesting system that was much more prevalent in the three-player game, where you will try and make someone take their turn earlier than they might want to, just so they can free up an action space so that you can go on it with a more reasonable dice. Because if someone puts a six mm. on a space, it's great, because it means they can go on any space that they want. But if they put a six down, that space is locked until it gets back to their turn, um, which is yeah. really quite nasty. I really liked rolling my dice at the start of my turn and getting high numbers and going, yes, I can go and do whatever I want. And then realizing that you've now become this massive burden for your team because <laughs> wherever you go blocks that space. And then equally, I liked rolling my dice and getting low numbers and being like, oh, I guess I have to take actions I wasn't planning to. None of this is complicated. Like, I feel like you could teach the rules to endangered to a group of seasoned board gamers in just a few minutes. But between the scenario design and just the design of the puzzle, um, I found it, you know, thought provoking and thematic. There's kind of nothing to not like about Endangered. It didn't set my world on fire, but I don't know. I had a blast. And I really like that when you end your turn, you have to roll multiple dice. One dice to see if any of the animals breed, which is partially why you're pushing them around to shunt them into breeding pairs. Um, but then you also have to roll because their environment is getting smaller and smaller. So you're balancing trying to influence countries, which is what you have to do to win, with trying to keep the animals alive, which is... A really straightforward, it, it's it's not an overcomplicated co-op design is endangered. It's as complicated as it needs to be to keep you thinking. And then it just gets out of your way. I really liked it. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think it is, it's surprisingly simple. I talked to my group in about 10 minutes. Like it's so quick and speedy to pick up. Once you've explained how the dice system works and the action card system, everything else kind of just falls off of that in like, you know, a nice little branching path of like, oh, well, do you want to do this? Well, this is how you do that. It's very simple. Um, Although I do think you said that, so it's thought provoking, yes, but also maybe <laughs> unintentionally quite funny. Yes, yes. <laughs> the subject matter for this game is very serious, but the idea that you could, like, for example, spend so long trying to influence the countries and get them on side that you sort of just forgot to actually save the tigers is something that can happen like often. And also something that we found in our sea turtle game from the expansion, which I'll talk about in a second, was that we began to become incredibly practical about what animals we should like bin off. Like the sea turtles is an expansion uh, animal and they come with a situation where they have litter coming in. So you have a board that you flip the board and it's on the ocean side. You have the ocean and you have the shore and the turtles to breathe, they have to go to the shore, then they breathe, they go back out into the ocean, they come back over and over again. It's not like a conveyor belt of turtle breeding. Um, but the problem is that litter is slowly sort of drifting its way to the shore at the same time. And if a turtle ever goes through a litter space, it dies. And that's bad because you don't want your turtles to die. But in, in practicality, it wasn't just like, oh, we need to take all the litter out. It was like, where do we strategically place litter so it only kills one turtle around? It was just like, <laughs> and, and it became later on, we were like trying to work out 
because there was a situation where we didn't want our big turtle cluster, we didn't want to lose. So we were sort of just like sniping these turtles out the water with a few plastic bags. It was, it, it's horrible, <laughs> but, but also quite funny. Yeah. Um, it does, like, it, you are so mercenary. Like, another um, game about trying to save lives uh, that we covered on the site last year, uh, which is Hostage Negotiator. In that game, losing a hostage, you know, when a hostage is killed by the uh, terrorist or whoever, um, feels awful. Whereas Endangered is very much like, well, if we shove that tiger into the path of deforestation, it'll die, obviously, <laughs> but we'll keep the rest of the tigers safe. Yes. Like, there is no penalty for killing <laughs> these endangered animals. It's just about how many of the endangered animals you have. Yeah, it's, which it's, is it's very gamey. Creepy. It becomes super gamey super quickly, like, especially when you have these, when you have countries that have incredibly specific needs. Like, for example, Russia wants, um, like, as many spaces filled as possible. So, and it needs a requirement of eight, eight or more spaces filled with animals and Russia is happy. But that means that as soon as you have nine spaces filled, you're like, well, we can lose a tiger. That's no problem. Oh, 100%. I was really interested in one of the scenarios that comes in the expansion, which is, I believe, leopards. At, is it leopards? Jaguars. It's, it's a big cat. Jaguars and tapirs. Yep. So both of which are endangered, but jaguars eat tapirs, I guess. So you're trying to keep both of those species alive? Yeah, and you have to balance them out. So at the end of each round with the jaguars and tapirs on the board, you need to kill a certain number of... Actually, you need to choose which tapirs get eaten by which jaguars. And then any jaguars that don't eat a tapir become hungry and then next round if you still have hungry jaguars they die so you need to sort of continually feed the jaguars with the tapirs but you're also trying to protect the tapirs too it's weird mm. and there's another expansion module that has the devil's hole pup fish which is the rarest fish in the world and i was i do not know by the way how they came up with that fact because surely <laughs> there's like I mean, how do you have exact numbers of fish and how do you... Like, we've, we haven't even discovered tons of fish that are at the bottom of the sea. I don't know. I think that's like... What was it called? The, the Devil's Hole? Twins, it doesn't matter anyway because I thought the Devil's Hole pup fish, the rarest fish in the world, would be a huge empty board with just one fish in it. And I was really sad to find out that it wasn't. You've got like eight of these fish. They can't be that rare. <laughs> so that was Endangered, a cool, weird little system about saving some animals... And now we're going to have Ava telling us about Ishtar, which is a game about a desert, maybe? Yeah, let's talk about Ishtar. Ishtar is a game by Bruno Casala and Evan Singh, published by Yellow. It's actually from 2019, so it's quite old at this point, but it's been knocking around the shut up and sit down offices for a while, and I finally managed to be the one to actually play it. I just said offices like we've got real offices. I mean, I guess sometimes we do. Ishtar is a game about farming and it's not really about farming and it doesn't really make sense there's so many thematic things that don't make sense in this but it's a game where there's a desert the desert has fountains in and you build out from these fountains to collect the jewels that are spread across the desert in this big hexy map and you collect the jewels and you trade the jewels to build trees and get superpowers that just happen for a little bit or get you points. And there's lots of things going into it. And it appears to be a game that's a little bit like Go in that you are root building and playing tiles onto the board to present these gardens. You claim ownership of some of the flower beds in those gardens, but there's so many very specific rules about how you can play stuff that what you're always trying to do is both expand your options and what you can do on your next turn whilst 
limiting the options of other people because there's rules like you you have to be a connected to a fountain so there has to be some way of water getting to wherever you're placing the new thing so you have to build out from the fountains but you also each of the gardens which is like adjoined tiles has to be not next to going into a different fountain you've got to keep these gardens separated enough and each of the flower beds which are the ones on the gardens the tiles on the gardens that actually have flowers on them can only have one assistant on it and you can't place anything so that another assistant would be joined so the flower beds have to be kept separate so there's a really interesting spatial puzzle here about how you with a single tile that'll be uh, three spaces in size and a couple of different shapes how you place that so that you collect as many jewels as you want make yourself a nice big spacious flower bed stop your opponents from being able to do the same and limit other people's options while leaving yours open <laughs> and but this game sounds great I, that doesn't sound like there's a butt coming at all <laughs> uh, well uh, this this is it like there's a lot to like about that side of this game like i think there could be a really solid thing on that front it is ruthless it's got that little bite of like you can put something down and be like a couple of minutes later like oh that was a terrible move or like oh my word I can't believe you did that like there's room for that sort of play in this game and I like that sort of game unfortunately to my mind and I've got some caveats here but I'll get to them in a little bit but to the people that I played it with we found that the other half of the game the first thing that you do on your turn was very frustrating in how it worked um, so this is tied to there's a second board so as well as having a desert board which is all of the geography that you're playing with you've also got the carpet board um, which has which has little cups in it filled with the tiles that you're going to be putting onto the gardens how do you fit a garden in a cup so you take on the first thing you do is move a watering can to the next space or if you want to pay some jewels you can move an extra space or an extra two spaces. So you've almost got like a Mancala style rotating around a rondel and picking things up with the option to go a bit further if you're willing to pay for it. Uh, we had a big argument about whether watering cans would have existed in the time of the Gardens of Babylon. We also got a bit annoyed that this isn't the sort of gardens that the Gardens of Babylon were. I don't know why it's called Gardens of Babylon. They could have just called it Ishtar. The theme doesn't match up with things, but it looks beautiful on the table. The glittering gems are really nice. They're there's colour and there's shape and there's a feeling of expansion as green pours over the desert. Like there's nice things here. Unfortunately, this is a game that I wanted to be an abstract territorial game about managing geographies and being directly mean to your fellow players and blocking and cleverness and all of this kind of stuff something like through the desert like I looked at it and I thought through the desert and that kind of navigation and like every move matters there's too much to think about but you can really start pushing in different directions and um, that game feels like it lives inside this game but is trying to break out because it can't get around the fact that this mechanic where you're picking up tiles would be fine but it ties together where you are on that rondel with both how many actions you can do how many gardeners you can put down as well as the tiles you are getting and these things aren't in a balanced way in the stacks that I have like there's some random elements to how they are and what come, order they come in you get the impression at the beginning that this is going to be fine it's just a little bit of a limitation that exists where 
sometimes you'll be able to do this action, sometimes you'll be able to do that action, and sometimes you have a choice. Because the, the top of this little rondel, you see at the beginning with the starter tiles that all have an action on. Um, in the game we played, those actions after that first round, the actions became incredibly limited and there was only a couple. I got to not do most of them during the game. The other thing that they'll let you do is trade some gems that you've hopefully already got for um some for a special ability that you unlock on your board and there's this little very very stubby tech tree that is just like you have to do something on the bottom row before you can get the thing above it on the top row and these powers are huge and they look really exciting and they're really they're interesting things that break the rules of the game you might be putting an extra tile on the board to just grow a garden on top of one of the gardeners that's already there um, adding more flowers, which will get you more points. You might be able to, one of them lets you unlock tiles for future things and unlock new assistants, so you've got more of them available. Um, and then the top row is all about different ways of scoring points. So there's the whole two-step process of if you unlock both of those levels, you'll have something new that you're getting points for at the end. Maybe you'll get points for being adjacent to trees. Maybe you'll get points for being near to the sacred tablets that are scattered through the desert as well and are just a flat piece of board art that you can't normally put gardens onto. You can't do the actions you want to when you want to. You have this lack of choice about what you're doing unless you have lots of gems to be able to spend them on moving around further. But even then, sometimes... Other people have just been more lucky with when the next thing was an action that would be useful and an upgrade that would be useful. And that's not like, can you see how much these two sides of the game don't match up? I mean, all I can, all I'm thinking is that when you said you wanted a kind of abstract game in a desert, and then you did mention, I thought it might be something a bit like through the desert. It does sound to me like, you know, when you leave a potato in a cupboard and forget about it for like nine months and then it grows like all of these completely pointless vines and leaves and it tries to, it, it expands pointlessly looking for life. This this game to me sounds like if you left through the desert in a cupboard for nine months <laughs> and it just created a bunch of systems that don't sort of build on the core of what's yeah. interesting which is this area control game in the middle of the table that you're all duking it out of yeah and i think that with just like a little bit more confidence in that core game and just leaving it as that being the core game and not trying to add these upgrades or limiting how that happened or giving you a lot more flexibility in when you would be able to do the things it could be a much better game but presumably they did that at some point in testing and deciding it wasn't so i don't know i don't know and maybe and this is the big caveat that i want to make if this was one game and it was a game where we all knew by the end of it we played that really suboptimally there's definitely a way that we could score better there's definitely a way we could get more points and like that side of the game might become a little bit more interesting however we also all very firmly agreed that we had no desire in playing that second game and while that means that for some people this game might be great i think for my purposes of I want to put a game in front of people and I want to know on their first game they can have some fun like they might not do well they might not win but they should be able to like find an experience that excites them and lures them into something and when I've got a table full of people who we play a game and are like oh yeah I can see all of the things that are clever there but I wouldn't play it again because it's either going to get and like the other thing is, like, once you've got more experience at it, there's probably, there's whole new ways of being really, really mean 
And I think that there's probably ways of being really mean in this game that completely lock people out of the game and leave them sitting at a puzzle that they're not able to take part in anymore. Because that almost happened to me by accident in this game. Um, and I came dead last by quite a large margin. Um, but it, yeah, I don't know. It's a game that locks you out somewhat randomly and just not randomly enough that other people could manipulate it so you get locked out even quicker. And that doesn't sit well with me. So I was a bit disappointed by this. I this, I have been ogling Ishtar Gardens of Babylon for years and looking at it and thinking, God, it just looks so... I love the art design. It, it makes the desert look so mm. vibrant. And then you cover it with even more like glossy green gardens and fountains and trees. And these are all nouns I like. <laughs> and tech trees. You said those, those are a pairing of words that gets me excited. But yeah, no, when I saw that there wasn't much hype around it, I figured that perhaps it wasn't quite as strong as I'd hoped. Finally, on this podcast, we're going to talk about Dadlands. This is a game about two dads hanging out at the beach together. They're throwing volleyballs, they're uh, cooking grills on the barbecue, there's tall, big dads there, uh, medium dads there, small small dad. Come on, please, please, gang, help me out here. I'm, this doesn't sound like the game we played at oh, all. God. I'm pretty sure, Tom, we played Radland. That's the one! By Daniel Pichik and published by Roxley Games. Uh, yes, we did. So Radlands is a two-player dueling card game set in the post-apocalypse. Uh, but this post-apocalypse is very bright. It's very colorful. It's very over-the-top. Uh, all the art in this game is superb. It's all neon. It's glowing. It's bold. And it's uh, bright. And during the game, the players are going to act as rival tribes trying to wipe your opponent from the face of the earth. Uh, to do this, you've got to destroy their three camps. These are black cards that sit in a row in front of you, drawn from a relatively chunky deck. And these camps all have unique powers that are going to determine your strategy for each game. And then the general flow of the game, once you've got your three camps in front of you, is a simple little round structure where you're going to draw a card, you're going to replenish back to three water, which is the one and only resource in this game, and then take actions. And actions can be playing a card to protect your camps, drawing more cards, which costs a chunky two water, uh, or maybe using the abilities on your cards to do damage to your opponent's stuff. So all of that is like pretty nice and simple and it sits inside this very tight economy. You always have three water to spend. It's just what you choose to spend it on in that uh, little array. However, three water very quickly starts to feel like no water uh, because everything in Radlands is horribly expensive when you're only ever refreshing up to three each turn. Using an ability and drawing a card could be your entire go. So where Radlands chooses to get really spicy is in this trashing mechanic. So every card in the game can only be played onto the board. So you might play your Pyromaniac as a Pyromaniac card and their ability is to do damage to stuff. Or instead, you could trash that card to get its trash effect that sits at the top of the card. These are a one-time bonus that might give you an extra water. It might damage an opponent's unit. It might let you repair a damaged card. It might start your raid event, which is this event that will always deal an opponent's camp. Now that might not seem like much, but it does change the way that you look at your hand and it increases your potential to get out of tough situations. But choosing to do that is so hard because cards are so scarce uh, in this game. Um, Quinns, do you actually, 
maybe you're not the best person to ask. Because in our games of it, I had like nothing and was constantly trashing cards just to keep my head above water, whilst Quince had a fleet of dudes just hanging out in front of his camps ready to destroy my stuff. I think that you and I playing this game is actually kind of a good game case study in why it's pretty cool um because yeah i focused entirely on building up an economy which meant spending water to recruit people with names like you know sniper and assassin and repair bots <laughs> um which makes this game sound super generic but honestly the sort of um electric pink and the neon mm. and the logo is all so cool that it only just as we were sitting down to record this podcast did i realize radlands is short for radiation lands and not radical lands <laughs> Um, but yeah, I play, I used my water to recruit these people and these people then stood in front of my camps, which kept me safe and gave me access to all of their abilities, which was other things I could spend water on. Um, so yeah, developing my board state, developing the options I had available to me. Whereas you used the same sort of steady drip of cards for their one shot abilities, which was like completely free, like do a damage, repair a thing, you know, trigger a raid or, you know, get the raid rolling towards me slowly, which is a mechanic I really like. Um, and, but weirdly, it felt like for a lot of the time we were kind of not evenly matched um, necessarily because obviously I think I displayed superior ability at Radlands over our two games than than you. Um, but no, I, I mean, I'm being silly, but like I was kind of routinely unnerved by how I was recruiting things in a way that felt really sensible to me and you just throwing away cards for their free one-shot abilities somehow often kept you alive or won you games. Yeah. And and we should we should eventually we should talk about the dispute that happened uh, in our second game of Radlands and get Ava's opinions on that. But it was it was very much it feels very well balanced to either of those playstyles in the sense that I won our second game, you won our first game, and there's this very much this like push and pull of like using cards for their immediate bonuses or building up sort of something of an engine but you can never rely on anything in this game i think that's where it really like nails the theme this is like a game that's full of like desperation and these like last stands and also this yes. this, this system of whether cards are ready or not if you play a card it's not ready if a card's taken damage it's not ready if you use a card's ability it's not ready most of the cards in this game will never be ready because your opponent is always <laughs> going to be trying to just take the rug out from underneath you and just do a little bit of damage here and there to make sure that you're never ready for that big push. It's not a game of like all out war. It's a game of like little raids and scraps that slowly sort of break the each side down. Um, you know uh, what it reminds me of? It's like, obviously it's, it's, you know, it's got this very Mad Max post-apocalypse vibe, but if you watch something like Fury Road, the amount of fights in Fury Road where like, there's a gun or a knife, but it's constantly being knocked out of someone's hands. Yeah. Or it's got like, there's no ammo in it. And that's what Radlands feels like on a strategic level where like you'll play a guy who can, you know, like sort of damn, like a sniper. Sniper's a good example. So sniper, you spend two water, the sniper can shoot past your opponent's cards that they have in front of them and hit the camps directly damaging them which moves you towards winning the game if you play a sniper that sniper has a good chance of never getting a shot off because the next your opponent will immediately figure out some way to damage them so then you repair them but then your opponent damages them again and then you repair them but then your opponent plays a truce which means you all have to pick up all your cards so you have to play the sniper again like you're so right tom there is so rarely a, an opportunity to use the cards for what you played them for which is actually yeah, it gives the whole game this mad scrabble feel. And before we go any further, I really wanted to get this this description out that, you know, 
so many of this is like a game in that oeuvre of Magic the Gathering where players play creatures to try and attack one another's health. That like there's a whole genre of card games. It's the foundation of most trading card games. Um, what Radlands feels like to me, because it's just a box that contains like what, like 90 cards or something, most of which are unique. And it and those 90 cards are all you ever play with, and it's not like expandable yet. You know, there's not sort of boosters, there's not custom decks. You're just playing from the same deck every time. And that deck is really well balanced mm -hmm. to give you a good game. Like if you want to know why people play Magic the Gathering, I think Radlands is a really good start because it's just a finite amount of cards that is balanced so that you will have a pretty good tense game every time you play it. And I think that it, it's I think that Radlands has this really good thing where in other competitive card games, each game has a very trite or sort of a very well-known flow to it. You know that people are going to be at certain power levels throughout the arc of a game. The thing I like about Radlands, it gets straight into the most intense part of the game on every turn. As soon as you start playing Radlands, you have crazy abilities that are on the board that can do huge amounts of damage. So it's constantly just that push and pull uh, tug of war between both players. They try and sort of make it so their opponent can't do that horrible amount of damage that they're, they're waiting on. Like there are cards, there's the card called Gunner in this game that just does a damage to like every opponent's card in front of them. And if you let that Gunner take one of its shots, it's like, that's such a huge tempo loss for you that you can't let them do that. It's so desperate and it's so mean. <laughs> Yeah, the, this genre of card games, there are so many kind of combative, dueling card games like this. And I think, you know, I've got hesitancy in my voice because Radlands is not, you know, amazing. It doesn't make me want to run out and get my own copy of Radlands. But it's really good and really good looking. Like, as just a small, cheap package with really nice art, it's the most impressed I've been by a card game in some time. Um, which is... Uh, it's just a very tricky genre to get right. And I'm, I'm really quietly impressed by it. I think one of the reasons that both of us might really say that we love Radlands in, in a lot of ways, but wouldn't necessarily go out and buy it ourselves, might be because the late game pushes into being a little bit exhausting almost. Because generally the game is, because you're at each other's throats for so long and there's no breathing room for the whole game, when you do that for 30 minutes the desire to play again isn't that high just because you're kind of knackered. Mm. <laughs> mm. It's it's very much that uh, that genre of um, strategy game where I love taking my turn and then my opponent does a bunch of awful stuff and dismantles everything I've done. But then it's my turn again, I love it, but then my opponent does something real mean. <laughs> but then I do something mean, but then my opponent makes me pick everything up. Right, should we should we begin the criminal court where yeah. Ava determines whether yeah, you here, we absolutely should. I'm here to adjudicate your dadland's debacle. Okay, which of us should describe this, Tom? Because I believe that's going to... I'm not going to... It's going to colour the colour the Who is the prosecution, right? Uh, okay, Quinn's right. is the prosecution. Uh, I, I will... I will. It's so prosecution which, who, who then defence, isn't it? Yeah, the prosecution okay. Okay, lays right, out a go. case and then the defence and trust. But I, well, hold on, but I reserve the right to be like, that's bullshit. If Quinn says yeah, something you, wrong. Yeah, yes. I believe the word is objection, you, Tom. Um. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I, I quite like that in the Shut Up and Sit Down Court, you <laughs> yell. <bull> <laughs> yeah. Phoenix, right, shut up and sit <laughs> um, down. That's bull. 
<laughs> oh my god. Right. Okay, Ava, listen. So Tom and I are playing um our second game of Radlands. It's pretty intense, you know? It's a it's a game where like often Tom or I will be silent for like 20 to 30 seconds at the start of our turn with the opponent just waiting because there's this like weight of like consideration all considering all of the options available to you and all the stuff happening on the board. Also, Radlands is a game where every single card has an ability printed on it, but as you play these cards in front of you, whether they're gangsters or camps that you've got in front of you, those cards are oriented towards you. So only you can read the abilities of all yeah. your cards, right? <laughs> yeah. With me so far cuz I understand yeah, I, think I understand is, the I, concept of uh, a card being the, orientated of, and having of, words on it of cards. Good. So basically, Tom on his turn had a card which if I didn't resolve it, Tom would win the game. And I very carefully thought to myself for like easily, you know, I considered everything over six seconds, played one card, played another card, used the action of another card. But at no point in my turn did I address this card that Tom had in front of him that would mean I would lose the game. Um, and then, so clearly, I had forgotten about it. And then Tom, at the at like 25 minutes into the game, then said, aha, Okay, it's my turn. I advance this card, I advance this card, and you lose. Hey, uh, Quinz, you like, made me sound like a bit of a... You made me sound like a bad <laughs> bad man there. I think I said it in a much uh, nicer, friendlier way than that. Uh, wait, was I... Oh, sorry. That's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Can we do this procedurally correctly? Yeah, can, can you do that again, but can you make me sound better? Uh, okay, right. I'll, I'll, I'll describe to the very best of my ability what happened. Tom's turn began... Tom said, it's the start of my turn, so this event advances. I use this ability, so the event goes forward again, which takes your last card, and you lose. So he was relatively sportsmanlike <laughs> at that point. <laughs> and then he produced this total shit-eating grin <laughs> and looked at me because he knew, he knew. We don't even need to be in a court because Tom knew he was being a and pushing his luck in that moment. <laughs> and then he, you know, he didn't say GG, he didn't reach across the table to shake my hand. Um, so, so, but in all, re in all seriousness, cause like I, it, the reason someone I then had to have like a 10 minute discussion about this <laughs> is because it really sat wrong with me because I think obviously, you know, I have long experience playing card game tournaments, like in a game with so many custom abilities and where you're, you know, and where your opponent's like really thinking about their turn, it's just bad sportsmanship to try and make them forget about something that only you are looking at the right way up. So the prosecution rests. Tom, if if you want to further embarrass yourself, you could, you know, mount a defense. No, that's, that's fair enough. Um, the, the, the problem, I think, I, uh, yeah, I thought, it, I thought it more just an interesting way of approaching these games because I think there's a whole aspect. We talked about memory being a mechanic in games and like whether memory is something that like should be I tested during the I hate my memory in every way <laughs> shape and form but there's a good ex i thought an interesting parallel to something like that was be there was another game where i would have maybe changed what i did on my turn had i have known you had a certain card in your hand and i'd seen that card before but you didn't remind me of that and i think that's an interesting one because it's like the difference between visible I guess that's a whole different set of mechanics. It's like once a card goes back into your hand, then memory becomes a mechanic. Whereas when it's on the table, memory shouldn't be a mechanic. Therefore, you should tell your opponent if there's, you know, a thing they've, they've probably forgotten that's staring them right in the face. Um, I think in this case, it just rubbed me the wrong way because you had played more Radlands than me and I forgot a mechanic in Radlands and then you gleefully <laughs> used the fact that I forgot a rule well, to win. Quite I did quite gleefully do a big smile. <laughs> 
I don't think yeah, I used the fact that you forgot a rule. I think I just uh, you overlooked something because I really I do, I really dislike it when people use teaching a game as a way to like get one up on someone. I saw it recently. You mean like you did to me? Well, I didn't no, mean to. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. I'm being, I'm being, I honestly, I was just partially salty because it's just. This is the problem with head-to-head guns, isn't it? Like, and this is, I think, one of the reasons that for as much as you and I are quite impressed by the design of Radlands and think it's really neat, um, like, I just really like the event system in it, where the way events work in the game, they're almost never instantaneous. They either go in a three-slot, a two-slot, or a one-slot, and then you advance it on your turn. Um, you advance all the events you've played on your turn. Anything that hits a zero triggers. So there are huge events in the game, but your opponent will know it's coming mm. in three turns. Mm-hmm. In the case of Tom, I played a... Uh, it's a bombard card, yeah. which absolutely wrecks someone's your opponent's board state. But it, but Tom was able to win the game before it even landed, and it was, it, it's just it's a it's a game full of good stuff. But it just feels kind of bad to have a game where you're really just whacking each other upside the head every single turn. It's very it's brutal. I think it's really good, but I do think it is definitely brutal. You'll know if this is the kind of thing for you yeah. if you're hearing this and going like, ha ha, yeah. Or if you're going like this sounds terrible, the worst thing I could ever put in front of me. Um, and I, but I do think I also just sorry you tried to just to go back just a hot little second. You did try and wiggle <laughs> your way out of the fact that what happened after our dispute, Quins? After a little, you dispute, won the game fair and square. Oh, yeah, you I don't did. try. I'm not oh, going to feel yeah, bad about the fact that I was a. I wanted you to play properly. We played properly, and then you won. Yeah. Like that's fine. I am okay with that state of affairs. You bested me. I know. You bested me in my own home. But yeah, no, Tom. I like you. Have got this. I don't know if I would tell anybody to rush out and buy it. I feel like people who are super excited by guns and post-apocalyptic card games will probably get it, and that's probably enough. What do you think? I would say that if you are looking for a this exact kind of very harsh and quite mean two-player dueler, I think this will absolutely be up your alley. I think a lot of people will really get a lot out of it if they're into... If they could imagine playing this game and it being really tense and really tricky the whole way through and their brain burning up and then going, let's play another one, then go for it. But I think for us, there are maybe so many games coming through that we can't sit with that system for as long as maybe we'd like to, to to plumb the depths of it, maybe. I do think I would recommend it to people generally, but just maybe it's not quite for me. And that's not the most useful piece of criticism I can give, but I do think that there is a lot there to really, really like. And I think the design work on the show is really quite like impeccable in that it nails the theme so well. And I think it's 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 really unique is one thing. I think it's super, super unique in this space in the way that it feels so different from a lot of other games, theme aside. I just think it wants a campaign. I mean, I'm a big fan <laughs> of campaigns. Can't get enough of campaigns. Uh, and I would love to see this have like an Undaunted or Memoir 44 campaign book style like territory capturing thing Whoa. in the apocalypse. Just give me a reason to be excited to go back for a second game so that when I finish a game, we've unlocked some new cards. Or You want every you know, game to have envelopes. Every game to be <laughs> I want, a little bit of legacy. I want every game to be a constant slow motion striptease of unpacking. That's what I want. Wow. And that's the end of this episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back again next week. Just thinking about strip for more now. Stop it. For more board games. It's just it's cardboard though, so it's okay. Th- thank like you cardboard. very much. I'm not for you can't objectify cardboard. Listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye for now. No.